What's going on, everybody? I am Jack Anderson, your host of the Upper Left Performance Podcast. And today on the show, I am joined by Jason Fairheller and Ryan Heikert. Jason and Ryan are the co-owners of Strength and Function, uh, a gym in the Pennsylvania area, specifically training hockey players. They also host the Speed and Power podcast, which I highly recommend listening to. They've had some great guests on, um, especially in recent weeks, so make sure you check them out. Jason and Ryan have done a great job establishing a change of direction, change of direction and agility system uh, unlike any other. It was really fascinating to hear them break down that system here on the podcast today. We also talk about special considerations for hockey and um, curvilinear running. Uh, all of these topics are some that I have experimented with quite a bit over the past six months to a year, and it was really cool to be able to talk shop with these guys who are putting it into practice at such a high level. Uh, make sure you follow these guys and their podcast, Speed and Power Podcast by Function and Strength. Uh, you can follow, you can subscribe to that podcast on iTunes. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Make sure you leave both some glowing reviews as we deserve them for all of our hard work. Uh, hope that you guys enjoy this particular episode of the Upper Left Performance Podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit me up on Instagram at Jack underscore Anderson III. And I can uh, hopefully either get a guest that you want on or address any specific questions about the show that you might have. Without further ado, though, here are Jason and Ryan. All right, Ryan and Jason, thank you so much for, for joining the show today. Um, figured uh, since you guys have me on yours, I need to, need, to, need to get back on the on the recording game myself and bring you two in to talk. Um, Jason and I have had a couple great discussions about change of direction and uh, figured we might as well bring them to the public. So thanks a lot for, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having us on, for sure. Yeah, it's great. Um, and then I have done a couple of podcasts where I interview multiple people at once, and you guys are more than welcome to play in off each other, and I can just sit back and let you guys take the same question, and you guys can do some banter and stuff, and I'll just break in when I, when I feel like it. So um, you got, you, as soon as one of you finishes, you don't have to wait to bring it back to me. Just do what you want to do. Will do. Perfect. Awesome. Okay, so Jason, this is my first question for you. Um, I know that uh, we've had some discussions about change of direction and agility work. And I was wondering if you can kind of take me to it through like a kind of a global perspective of how you view change of direction training, what your big rocks might be. And then we can kind of discuss further how we might layer in concepts and, and talk more specifics. So I'll start off with first, you need to have some form of rehearse drill and also some form of reactive drills within your program and how you've, figure that out is kind of up to you and, and what the athletes you have need. But two things need to happen in order for athletes to execute a skill well on the field. They need to be able to recognize what they need to do. And that is like the reactive part or the chaotic part. And then the second part is they need to execute the movement that they react to as intended. So a lot of times movement on the field might look poor but the movement itself is actually good. They just didn't do it at the right angle. So then the question is, were they even able to perform it at that angle? Have they had practice doing that, rehearsal doing that? So that's kind of, kind of what it comes down to. So we look at patterns of movement. We look at a lateral shuffle, a lateral run. Some people call it a, a crossover run, just a, a split step or from a parallel stance being able to, to move forward 
or a hip turn or repositioning step where you're going backwards. And in sport, you'll do a combination of all of those things and the ability to link those patterns or move from one of those to the other is what the real skill is in changing direction. So when I talked before about executing the movement as intended, if, if I just have someone and say, all right, I want you to, to move laterally and then I want you to move at this angle backwards, perform a hip turn backwards. If I ask them to go straight back, I'll typically see them the first time almost like round their turn. And in a sense that caused them to lose the angle that they've had if they're defending someone. So that's where you need to add in some rehearsed work and then some reactive work. And then we like to choose all of our stuff based off of the ability of the athlete to complete the movement we want as intended. So instead of just saying we have a linear day and a lateral day, we'll break up our days based off of the movement patterns. So we might have a day where we focus more on a shuffle, a day we fo might focus more on a hip turn. And then within those days, we'll start to link some of those skills together as the off season goes on and we get closer to someone's in season. So as far as in a session goes, this actually interests me a lot. I, um, I think traditionally we see a lot of uh, closed chain uh, change of direction drills, right? Where everything's kind of pre-patterned and we kind of start there and then we move into uh, more of the reactive based stuff. And I'm not saying you guys do. This is just what I typically see, um, you know, out in social media or talking to other coaches. Uh, recently for myself, I started to rethink that a little bit when I'm working, especially with kids and open the world up a little bit for them in terms of what they can do within a drill, provided that I kind of feel they have the, the necessary groundwork, particularly for me in linear sprinting. Um, so once I have those things, a lot of times I'll just throw them right into uh, something that's a little bit more reactive and less closed chain. And then work my way back if I see them struggling. I don't know if that's something you guys do or not. I just wondered what thoughts you had on something like that. For sure. So when, when we have an athlete come in, all right, we have them perform a drill. And if they keep on making the same mistake, let's, and I'll just use like an upper body sway or an upper body tilt as an example. So they stop, but they kind of get stuck in a cut and their upper body sways. So the question is, did they react poorly and they were just kind of up too tall and and they didn't move well or are they just not capable of doing that and that's kind of up to us as coaches to figure out so if it is a matter of they're they are able to do the rehearsed version of that well and we give them a few kind of what we would term like corrective exercises but drills maybe like some med ball fake throws or something to see if they have that ability and then if they do then it comes down to getting in more reactive type work. They just need to learn how to read and react to the person on the field. But if they don't have that, then we got to take a couple steps back and do a little bit more rehearsed work. So it does kind of come down to coaching the individual a little bit. And as a coach, figuring out what does the person need? It could be one or the other or both. Right. So I, I think if we like step back for a second and you look at our, our overall speed model, this is something we've been kind of working on, you know, and I think it started with, we see speed as a skill, right? And then, you know, when we're doing some of our, like our writing, all of a sudden I'm using the word skill, 10 different ways to describe 10 different things. And it was like, like, what are we trying to say here? Like it, it needs to make sense. So if you hear Jason talk about skills, 
typically we're using skills at the top of our, our speed model and we're using that as linking skills. So linking skills together, like a hip turn to a shuffle or a hip turn to a sprint, things that are going to impact your performance during a game, right? And then underneath that, we have movement patterns, which are acceleration, max speed or max velocity, and then change of direction. And within that, that change of direction, Jason talked about the big ones for us, which are, you know, hip turns, uh, crossover shuffle, and there's more. And then the next one is the ability. So what ability? So what do these athletes need to perform within these movement patterns to do them efficiently, right? And then from there, we have the drills. So what Jason was saying is we'll start with a drill typically on a day that's going to be a crossover. And then based off of what we see in that drill, we'll work backwards up that chain to give them the corrections to fix that ability. I know I shouldn't use the word fix, but improve the ability and then improve the movement pattern, improve the linking skill. And then within all that, there's a bandwidth because no one's going to move perfectly. There's going to be a bandwidth at which these athletes are things that we want to see within that bandwidth. Yeah, 100%. I think that's really interesting too. You mentioned that. I, I, I call them kind of like movement signatures. And um, I'm someone that, that gravitates towards saying less and letting things kind of play out how they will and watching it a few times before you do anything. And um, I think that's, that's hugely important just because, again, like Jason, you pointed out, I think it's so crucial just understanding why the mistake was made is more important than observing. There's a mistake. I think any coach can observe there's a mistake, but, but what can we do once we see it and, and pick the right intervention or just let it play out again and see if it fixes itself. Right. Yeah. One of the best things you can do is ask an athlete after they perform a drill, how do you think you perform that drill? And if they're able to recognize something that they did poorly, or they are able to recognize something that they did well, that is a huge step because when we want our athletes to learn, we're not giving them, you know, a ton of verbal cues, like move your foot this way and, and get your hip this direction or anything like that. We're trying to pick drills that put them in a position without actually having to verbally cue them to get where they need to go, because that's how learning is going to happen much better. Yeah, no, I right. absolutely. Oh, I absolutely love that. Go ahead, Ryan. No, I was just gonna say that that's exactly it. Like, if they improve from one rep to the next, we say nothing, even if it's a tiny improvement, right? Because they are getting it. They're figuring it out. Like the, the little that we can say is possible. And I, I know sometimes as coaches, we feel like we're being paid to, to tell them things. But at the same time, like we look at speed training, or I, I know I do, is like it's like learning to ride a bike. You don't tell someone how to do it. You kind of hang on long enough till they figure it out. <laughs> and that's kind of what we're doing with the speed work, right? Is we're putting them in positions or giving them drills to allow their body to figure it out without us telling them to do it. As far as the, the linear speed piece goes, like working into change of direction, um, how, how connected are they in your guys' system, linear speed and change of direction? Huge. So we'll, we'll incorporate probably like two days out of five as far as like primarily linear speed work, we'll get in an acceleration day and then we'll also get in a max velocity day. But even when we're doing change of direction work, the ability to accelerate out of any turn or any position is huge. So, you know, I guess we, we can kind of say we're, we're working acceleration a little bit every single day. 
Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's kind of how I've gone with this too. Is I, I see if we can establish like a common whatever your language is for linear speed, a lot of that's going to translate over to the, the change of direction agility side of things. And um, I mean, for me, that's one one thing where I'll, I'll hammer a ton of acceleration before I'll even get to change of direction in a lot of cases. Which I don't know. I, I debate about this all the time in my head. I don't know if it's good or bad that I kind of ignore a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, up front, but I feel like if I have, like, I've had the best success where if I have kids who really understand acceleration principles and understand the language in which I'm talking, as soon as I move into a lateral hip turn or, or, you know, maybe a shuffle in back into a sprint or something like that, it's just so much easier for them to get what's going on. Because I pretty much say, you know how we've accelerated for the last three or four weeks, like that's what we're going to do again, except we're just going to add this to it, <laughs> you know? For sure. I think acceleration is out of everything is probably the easiest thing for someone young or I'll say even someone unexperienced to start to understand how to get their body to move. I mean, you can take a, a poor first step and feel like, oh, I, I felt like I was like stuck in the mud on that. Or you can accelerate well and you're like, wow, I, I felt like I was much faster. But then you can always carry that over to all of the change of direction work that you're going to do. And especially like if if we're doing acceleration work, part of our warm up for that day will still be some form of change of direction work, some low level rehearsed drills. So no matter what, they're always getting introduced to these movement patterns. And I mean, we kind of refer to like Dan, John and Pavel in the easy strength method a ton where part of our warm up is stuff that we want them to do all the time and get really good at where just a couple reps every single time they're in and over a long period of time, they'll start to figure out. And it's amazing. Some of this stuff, it's, it's like, you know, I, I've had people do some like different skipping stuff and we've had like young kids that they can't even skip. And it's like, we just add that into a warm up for a couple months without even having to give them a ton of cues and they will start to figure it out on their own. So in terms of change of direction work, you can actually add that in on your acceleration day as part of a warm up, And it's a good way to start to introduce it. And then they can kind of figure that out. And then when you actually have change of direction days, they already have a base for it. What, uh, what drills are you using right now in terms of you were talking, and this is kind of my favorite way to do drills as well is to put the athletes in a position where it just happens uh, for them without them having to even really, you know, assess anything too much. It just happens. What, um, can you give me some examples of that? Like maybe something in a particular movement that you commonly see some of your athletes struggle in, and then what you're going to kind of maybe do to provide them an environment where things, they can just kind of, things just work for them. We do a ton of stuff with band accelerated or band resisted stuff. So a band accelerated thing would be like pulling them into a turn or they already start with resistance on them or having them start with some resistance. And we have these like really long loop bands. They're, they're awesome. But let's say someone is constantly or consistently too high whenever they're going through like a lateral shuffle or a, a lateral run step, we might have them put a band and then put it up higher, like almost underneath their armpits because the, the higher the tension on the band, the lower they have to go or else their upper body is going to start to get pulled back the direction it is. And then, so that, that's a good way. If someone is either too high or they're kind of moving a little bit slow, they need to create a little bit more force. We love to, to add in some, some band resistance. 
Um, I mentioned before about doing some of the fake med ball throws or different stuff like that to fix some of the upper body sway. Those are two of kind of big things that, that we like to use if, that we'll see a lot with. I like that fake med ball one too, because I feel like, you know, just, and you mentioned, I think it kind of goes hand in hand with that band accelerated stuff. It can kind of pull someone into a cut. Um, and you see it a lot, I think, in, in just like basic, I've seen it a lot in my career before I knew about that stuff. You kind of like, oh, like get into this cut here, then they're going to come out and go the other way. And, and in addition to, you know, occasionally seeing the trunk lean, you also just see someone that, you know, I think Justin Moore talks about, you know, changing levels, right? Getting down into that hip and then being able to accelerate out of it. And um, I know like the med ball throws and the band assisted stuff. I've seen like a ton of, of success with that. I don't know if you guys kind of look at it the same way, but. Yeah. And I, I, Jason always like, I know he'll probably talk about this too, but you know, we do a lot of multi-directional plyometrics, metrics, right? So it also depends on like, do we need to, to produce more force here or do we want them to have like a lower ground contact time? Right. So we kind of mix in some of our plyos into our speed work. You know, we still separate that as part of something we do after our speed work, but we don't do a, a huge volume because that's going to be some of our drills, right? So if we want someone to be maybe a, a little bit higher and a little bit faster, we'll bring out a low box and we'll cue them side to side, nice and fast, right? Versus if we want someone to produce more force, maybe get a little bit lower, we'll add in a band or like a med ball, right? Which is going to force them to have to absorb more of that force to produce more force the other way. Um, but Jason does a great job uh, at building out multi-directional plyos, which teaches us a lot of this. And then it also is kind of that connecting dot for us when we're doing um, our linking skills, where we're going from hip turn to acceleration. We feel like the multi-directional plyo is like that missing link for most of these athletes to have that ability to use the acceleration along with a hip turn crossover shuffle and then transitioning from one skill to the other. Now, uh, I, I love what you're talking about here with this kind of that yielding or overcoming. Are there any particular assessments you're doing to kind of determine if the athlete is biased towards one or the other? So you kind of know how to, how to stage, um, you know, your intervention in this case. I think it comes down to, I mentioned this before being a, a good coach. It's just a matter of like putting them in a drill, figuring out if they're getting stuck in the drill. And this is where like rehearsed drills are, are really good. You know, if, if someone, I have someone doing a lateral bound, and they can't push off super far and they can't stick that landing. They have some yielding problems and, and they'll need some like general strength in order to fix that. Now, if someone has that ability, then the focus becomes minimizing contact on the ground when we're performing linking skills or what we had, what we term multi-directional plyometrics, because when someone's reacting to someone on the field, it's going to be more of a quick punch into the ground, the angles of the, the hip, and knee aren't going to be quite as low as it would be if we're kind of doing a general lateral bounce. We need to practice kind of those quick punch positions in order to produce power into the ground and move other directions. Right. So we did oh, sorry, a lot of, no, I was going to say like, we've done a lot of fitness testing KPIs, or you want to call it like with counter movement versus static jumps and holds. And I don't think we were seeing a lot of correlation between how the athletes really moved in real time, right? So a lot of what Jason talks about and, and what we talk about is 
you're going to see different angles and you're going to see different movement patterns. If you ask these athletes to do them at different speeds, right? So having them go all out in an open drill where they're, they're shadowing someone, the angles and the foot placements change. And when we were slowing them down and having them do a counter movement jump or a static jump and kind of measuring these numbers, I don't think we were getting accurate accounts of what these athletes were really capable of. So I think like what Jason's saying is a lot of it comes down to like a coaching eye, right? We still test tens, we still test max speed and different things, but having the ability to have them do an open drill and watch what their compensations are and how they move has seemed to be kind of best for us. I like that a lot. Now I know Ryan, your background is, is in hockey strongly. And it is actually making me think, cause I mean, I completely agree with you, Jason in field sports. A lot of times we're seeing that stiffness, that overcoming strategy that need to get from a to B in a way that doesn't allow you to have a lot, either one, spend a lot of time in the ground or two change levels at that, at that kind of, to that extent. Hockey, though, I know just from what I've you know read and then you know talked to to other hockey players, worked with a few teams before. It does seem like the sport itself will allow for some longer ground contact times and um, the ability to maybe use a little bit more of a yielding strategy. Would that be accurate, Ryan? So this is, I would say, where we differ from a lot of other people, mm -hmm. right? So I would say typically yes, right? But something just never kind of sat well with us is like, why am I training athletes to be slower? And I know that's kind of like a bad way to kind of look at it, but making these yielding forces, like going to single leg or adding bands, that's easy to do. But when it comes down to it, the fastest players, even though the ground contact time is going to be longer, the fastest players still have faster ground contact times. And a lot of what we're doing is these athletes already have more yielding effects all the time. So we've actually transitioned a lot to increasing you know what I mean? More true plyometrics and getting them off the ground quicker. And, you know, we still do our single leg bounds and we still do our half kneeling starts, but something that I've been seeing that's missing from a lot of these athletes programs is real good change of direction where we're focusing on getting off that ground quicker, maybe playing a, a little bit higher because in the game, it, we're still reading reacting and the game is the fastest game on, on earth. Like players are easily moving 23, 22 miles an hour all game not like once in a while, like this is happening quickly. And even though it takes longer to stop and reaccelerate, the athletes that do that faster are still the faster players. So I'd say we differ in some people is we actually try and do more true plyometrics and try and improve the impulse. I think that that makes a ton of sense. Cause if you look, I mean, I work predominantly with basketball right now. And these guys are a polar opposite of hockey when it comes to like, if you throw these guys on, on force plates or you just watch them train, I mean, they're hanging out on tendons, they're super springy, their concentric forces are through the freaking roof. And then, you know, you got me who like played, you know, high school hockey and uh, you know, I get on the plates and, it's like, oh man, your eccentric rate of force develop. It's amazing. But then once you go up, you go nowhere. <laughs> and, um, and uh, right. so I, I, that actually totally makes sense to me. And I really like that. I really like that thought process. Are there any other sports, Jason or Ryan, that you kind of are looking at where you see certain tendencies towards one way or the other in terms of this overcoming your yielding strategies? Well, I think in a lot of sports, the movement patterns don't necessarily change. Like they're going to be the same. If you have a, a soccer player 
even compared to a basketball player, the movement patterns are the same. The difference is usually the speed at which someone can get up to in a game or the movement patterns that someone might perform more in a game. So even like a defensive player would do more hip turns and different stuff like that. And what we've noticed even doing that is depending on what side of the field they play on, they'll always be better turning to one side backwards than the other, even without, um, you know, a ton of coaching, just be like, all right, I want you to turn this way. I want you to turn this way. And you'll notice that. So that's really the difference, but ultimately we need to, and I'm going to steal this term from Justin Moore. He said, timing the stiffness. So when someone goes into any sort of change of direction, along with changing levels, they have to time the stiffness of their leg into the ground to try to minimize the yielding effect as much as they can, or that eccentric load as much as they can to then respond back the other way quickly. It's interesting too. Like I'm, I'm thinking now when I, you, you watch, for example, the NFL's on right now, so it's a, a great example. You can talk about the different factors that can affect kind of the outcome of a desired movement. And um, I thought about this a ton. You see, sometimes guys will do take more of a yielding strategy. And, and a lot of times I wonder, is that, you know, magnitude of force from the, from the you know, direction that they're going in? Is that something they're reading that actually like they reassess something in the middle of the cut and then had to spend longer in the ground to fix it? Um, and all those things are fascinating. Sorry, it's just observation, but it's definitely, definitely something yeah. that's, that's very interesting. So the, the, the speed at which you go into a cut, the angle at which you come out of it and your uh, eccentric force or your eccentric strength all determine the levels of how high or, or how low you go into that cut. So, you know, obviously more speed and at a sharper angle, you're going to have to get lower. But if you can stay a, a little bit higher when you change direction, you don't have to take as long on the ground and you can slow yourself down quicker. That's still ultimately going to make you faster or quicker than someone else. Now, going over to the weight room side of things, Jason, I've seen you do a lot of like power work with lighter implements um, on your Instagram and whatnot. And that's something that I've kind of gravitated toward, my, toward myself over the last couple of years. What are, how much are you using with that? What are you, what are you kind of seeing with it? And, and where, you kind of, where do you kind of want to go from here with that? Well, I, I never max out really. And I, I think you know, there really isn't a need for it. strength is going to be gained over consistent training over a long period of time. So we don't necessarily have to go super heavy in order to do that. Now we'll still stay around that like 70 to 85% mark for a good bit of our strength work because 70%, we can still move it fairly fast. 85%, that would be a little bit more kind of strength oriented. So we're still developing force through those things, but I think speed is ultimately the name of the game. Even when we're doing our med ball work, we've decreased the, the weights of the med ball a ton. We're using like two pound med balls, four pound med balls for a lot of our throws and a lot of our things like that to just focus on speed. If I want someone to, to come in, I want them to know speed is our number one goal and everything that we do, I want you essentially to do it super fast. Right. And I think like along the same lines as that is like, we don't use strength to try and increase someone's speed. Like sometimes that happens, but we're looking to use our strength training as a way to assist our, our speed work. 
and this has kind of come from the, like the idea sometimes like we see a lot of our athletes in a short off season, right? Cause a lot of athletes play club, play high school and their, their seasons are longer. So we're seizing, we're seeing athletes for maybe four, six, eight weeks. And when we're doing this, we're having athletes within two, three, four weeks, take, I don't know, a hex bar deadlifts or a front squat. And they're easily getting up to body weight and more within three to four weeks. Well, we all know that they're not actually getting adaptation to that. It's more neuromuscular connection. So what we were seeing is you probably need less strength training to actually, you know what I mean? In, improve speed. Like a lot of people are like, oh, you shouldn't do too much change of direction until they're at a certain level of strength. Well, I think a lot of them are already there. They just don't know how to coordinate that strength. You know what I mean? And once they get some practice at it, it's, it's a little bit easier. And kind of going back to hockey is, it's played fast. So a lot of these kids are still playing and they're actually getting stronger by handling these yielding forces all the time. I think that that's actually, we're getting more from speed training to make us stronger than we are from strength training to make us faster. If yeah. That makes sense. I, no, I think it, I think it makes a ton of sense. And it's funny. You, you mentioned that kind of where everyone's like, Oh, well we shouldn't. Yeah. I think the NFC handbook, NSCA handbook even, talks about, well, we shouldn't do these plyometrics until you reach this level of strength. And I'm like, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Like we see these kids all the time doing stuff in sport that is in my opinion, way more, it's not danger. Well, I guess to some extent there's risk, but you know, it's not, it's not dangerous to go out there and, you know, play a game of soccer and do things at some pretty crazy loads and, and do some wild things when you're 10, 11 years old. Um, And it just seems kind of, kind of counterproductive. It's got, it's almost, it reminds me like ACL rehab where, where, you know, you go through all your little band work, do all your band stuff. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, he can play. And you're like, <laughs> you're right. like, you're like, how does this work? You know, to say like in reverse with this, it's like, well, he, he couldn't jump off this box right now because he's never, you know, he, he doesn't have a double body weight squat. And it's like, what are you, what are you, what are we doing here? You know? So. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I, I think that makes sense. And it's kind of like, um, you know, people talk about like filling buckets, right? Like what buckets are, are being filled in the sport and in the weight room. So it's like a lot of people in the hockey world, they don't want to do a lot of change of direction when they get them in the weight room uh, because they're like, oh, they, they see enough of that in the sport, but are they seeing it correctly? Right. Are they seeing, are they in the right movement pattern? Is it efficient? Are they seeing it at the right speeds or are they always working in this 70, 80% effort range during practice? So it's more of like a conditioning thing. Um, where I think we like to do a lot more of that just because the athletes aren't being coached on it. And we see it as a skill, just like you would, you know what I mean? Like, yes, for, we talked a lot about letting the athlete figure it out, but us giving them the correct drill to help them figure it out safely. I think just having an athlete, uh, they, they do a lot of change of direction and practice in games. So I'm not going to spend any time there is like a huge oversight on like what we do as like a a performance coach, seeing how that tends to be a huge part of almost all the, all the sports, unless you're doing like a track and field, you're, you're not traveling in a straight line for very long or you shouldn't be. Right. And I think that that kind of goes back to some of what we're talking about within like the strength training stuff in, in the weight room is like, we make sure that they see all these things and we're not just focusing on just, you know, linear acceleration, right? We're making sure we're getting in max velocity, max speed. We're making sure that we're seeing different positions and angles when we are lifting weights. You know what I mean? Obviously safely. And what Jason talked about, the percentages and using velocity more as a 
a measure than like max load. How do you, so you, you guys were, how, how old are the kids on average that you work with? I mean, we work with kids anywhere from like age 10. So we work with an entire hockey club. Okay. So any team that they have from essentially like age 10 up through U18 and in our gym, you know, typically some middle school, primarily high school kids, some college kids. Okay. And uh, that's kind of our semi-private or, or sports performance stuff. What, what, what is your, I, you guys have obviously been do, doing this for a while. I've been working with kids since like 2012. Now, what's your assessment? We talk about bringing kids, like having kids focus more on their outcomes and performance and like bringing them some understanding of what's going on in the training process or in sport, like getting them to self-reflect on things. How are your kids at that? Well, it really depends. <laughs> I, th I think it, it depends. And it, it's tough because it's like, does the kid want to be there or, or do the parents want the kid to be there? And that's probably the biggest factor. You know, if, if a kid shows any interest at all, it's very easy for us to educate them. And I know Ryan and I do this a ton. Even as we're doing a drill, we're trying to explain, here's how this drill would reflect a situation that you would see in, in gameplay. And once they can kind of understand that, like, oh, like, this is why this would help me. I'm not just like going through the motions here for really no purpose other than like, I think I'm getting stronger and, and I'm getting fitter. Once you can educate them and get them to kind of learn the intent of what we're really trying to do, that's the biggest factor that we can do. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if, if that happens in a lot of, a lot of places. I don't know. It, it worries me a lot and this is kind of my own observation, but it, like, I don't know. I've just seen a big change in kids from like 20 and now granted I've worked in a lot of different areas of the country too, which changes everything as well. But I just work with kids so much and I see just less and less ability to like assess their performance or to know what's going on or to really think about, you know, the outcomes or how they got to the outcomes. And I think that's great that you guys are able to kind of put them in environments if they care <laughs> that, that gets them to, uh, that gets them to kind of look at things in a different way. I think we're trying. Right. And then like, that's <laughs> like the, the part of like understanding the sport and you can kind of explain it, even if you didn't play the sport, but if you know some situational things and like, you can kind of explain it to them, that helps, but they have to want to learn like anything right? Like they have to want to do it. Um, and I've, you know, we've seen some of the teams and some of the same kids over the years. And I think just coming with like a consistent message, because there's kids that we trained two years ago that I don't think heard anything we said. And now this year, you're starting to see them kind of like nod the head and look at you and connect the dots. Like they're ready now. Right. So I think you just keep saying it, keep putting the message out there. Um, eventually it'll connect once they're ready. Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes a ton of sense. Now, back over just before we switch into a little bit, some of the questions I had with hockey, uh, I think we've already touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to ask you guys about like curved sprinting, curvilinear sprinting, um, some of that stuff. I know, Jason, you had mentioned like the speed going into a cut. Obviously, there's kind of that middle ground where we can go into something at a high speed, make a sharp cut and change direction. We could also go in something at a, at maybe even higher speed and curve it or do something like that, or come out of a curve into acceleration. How much work have you guys done with that, if any? And um, what, are, what are your overall thoughts on that stuff? I love it. Uh, and I think this is actually a great transition into talking hockey because 
a lot of times I try to get kids to, to think about their feet when they're running any sort of like semicircle or, or curvilinear sprint, like the edges on the skate where they're going to, instead of like keeping their feet staggered or apart, it's almost going to be like one foot in front of the other. They're going to be on the inside edge of one side, the outside edge of, of another side. And similar to like skating a circle, they're going to have to keep a lean in towards the middle of that circle. But I love it. It's, it's, I would consider that a skill in its own right is learning how to do that properly. And like you said, asking someone to, to do that, 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 you know, they're kind of overthinking it. It just looks ugly when they're going around it. And so, you know, if they can't perform it well, when, you know, here's the exact circle that we're going to have you run, then it's going to be tough for them to, to do it well in a game, but it's definitely something we do quite a bit. How, how big or small do you make the circles? Our facility is about 3,500 square feet. And, but the actual turf space is probably about like 15 by like 21, 22 yards. As big as we can go there. <laughs> so yeah, as, as big as we can go. Um, and then anywhere kind of smaller or in between that. Gotcha. Now have you, any, any, I've done this very little and mostly just with myself, any kind of big takeaways or trends you see things that you, that you try to correct or adjust or, or what, what are your overall thoughts on just kind of the execution of it from your athletes? I think that one of my favorite drills is like a cat and mouse figure eight drill where, you know, the mouse has to always run in a figure eight, but they can change direction whenever they want. The cat can kind of cut across a little bit but it's such a good read and react drill. It's a good drill for the coach to assess because not only are they running in a circle, but when they stop, especially in this curvilinear pattern, it's not just like a straight lateral stop. It's even a little bit tougher and you can see that. And I think as far as takeaways, a lot of times the upper body is not addressed enough in change of direction work where when people get stuck into a cut, it's typically more because they're, they're not rotating enough or they're rotating too much or leg strength that they have. So I think as coaches, definitely something to think about. Right. I, so that drill that Jason was just talking about with the kind of cat and mouse figure eight. So if you have people do like a lot of like circular running, a lot of times what they do is they have like their outside foot just keeps kind of stepping wide as that inside foot kind of hops around the circle they're just thinking about it too much, right? But when you put them in this open scenario where they're trying to be fast, you kind of lose some of that. It kind of goes away instinctively. Um, then I'll add in, I know, I know we talked about this about two weeks ago, it was like a Darian bar and having him kind of talk about getting the hips underneath and almost feeling like you're squatting when you're doing some of this curve running was a, was a big help for me. And it seems to be like an easy way to explain it to some of these kids that are, are really having like a hard time with it. Helps them, like Jason said, actually helps them get a better lean and control that upper body also. It puts them at a, at a better angle. I felt the same way. It's the only way I've done it that it's felt good. <laughs> so so uh, just, just getting into a little more of the squatting. And then I don't know, do you, will you talk to your athletes in those scenarios at all about steering with the, with the inside foot? Uh, as you try to navigate a turn, I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if I tell them to almost like run as if they're running on like a tightrope where one foot always goes in front of the other one, 
they're, the edges of their feet are going to kind of dictate how they're able to push off. So I'll never actually say, you know, run with like this certain foot. Um, what I like to do is tell them trace the inside of the circle with your inside hand. So instead of just having your arm go straight up and down, you're actually going to kind of like curve your hand as you run. And that's going to force their lean, force their foot in a good position as they kind of go around a circle. Yeah. Arm action is arm action on those is also very interesting. It's still something I'm playing with as well. I think that that might be a, that might be a whole Adarian bar pot. I might have to get a Darian on and just kind of just go ham on that with him and see what he's always got something different to say. <laughs> so, That's it. Um, uh, so um, getting it a little back into the hockey stuff, Ryan, I'm just yeah. curious, you know, talking about just some of the different factors uh, that happen, just playing on ice in a boot on a tiny blade of you know, piece of metal, as opposed to some of these other sports. What are some big um, kinematic or, or kinetic differences that you see um, working with hockey players as opposed to dry land? Right. So I think the big factor is, is obviously skating is different than running, right? So as much as we're doing all this running and we're looking at good running technique in the off season and in, in the weight room, at some point we need to start preparing them to experience these forces that they're going to experience, which is going to be a lot of external rotation at the hip, some pronation at the ankles to help find those, those edges. And we need to do that because of um, basically no friction on the ice. So we have to get parallel to that ice with that blade to propel ourselves forward. Um, big differences is like things actually kind of flip, right? So when you're looking at acceleration, you know, on land, we're typically going like a, a long to short, for the most part, and then acceleration on, on ice, we're actually going short to long, right? So it actually kind of flips. And this kind of brings us to like where we kind of ended up this summer is we were just kind of seeing like how much of are what we doing translating to the ice, right? Because we aren't on blades. We aren't getting these exact angles, these exact forces. Um, so we actually started taking our college athletes on the ice twice a week and doing our speed sessions on the ice, just as we would in the, in the gym. Right. So a lot of times what happens when you do like power skating, uh, me growing up kind of being like a hockey player is it gets real slow and you're doing real, real technical work for a long time, or it turns into a conditioning session. So we took the same concepts that we would use in, in the weight room and we transitioned that to the ice and we did, you know, acceleration days where we were measuring distance and then making sure we were getting proper rest. Uh, we were doing uh, max velocity days. We were doing change of direction days, open drills, closed drills, shadow drills. And a lot of the guys just, it started to kind of click. Those docks, those, those dots started to kind of connect for them. And they were getting a better sense of what we were looking for. Um, you know, so like big things that like we, and we are also kind of playing with this off season is, you know, kind of like a phase one is more traditional running to get them out of those externally rotated hips and start to give them things that they don't get. You know what I mean? Start to strengthen those hamstrings, uh, start to strengthen those ankles because they do lose a lot of foot and ankle stiffness uh, being in that boot. They kind of get locked in there, right? They have that like uh, kind of mechanical dorsiflexion from being stuck in the skate boot. Um, and then like our phase two would be, we start to incorporate more change of direction, shuffle work, getting into some of that 
you know, more hockey specific movements. Um, and then the very last phase before they're heading back is when we start transferring to the ice to make sure that we're actually getting that switch from the weight room, from the field into very specific movements that these hockey players are going to see. I'll say this about Ryan, because I'm sure he's not going to say it himself. Ryan's a phenomenal skater. And when you watch him on the ice and, and we train a, a lot of high level division one uh, college hockey players. He was able to do stuff that these guys had a very hard time doing. Even when he's doing like super tight turns and changes of direction, some of, the, some of them looked like a 747 making a super huge circle around versus, you know, keeping that cut and then learning how to, you know, put some pressure in certain areas so you can accelerate quickly out of those turns. Yeah, I, uh, I might need to come by and uh, get a le lesson or two. I'm a very average skater at best. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, no, that's something I'd like because the game of hockey has obviously changed to be a much more skilled game than it was 20 years ago, right, which is great. But I think what's happening and what I'm seeing is a lot of the skill has just gone to stick skills. How well do you handle a puck, right? And a lot of these athletes are faster acceleration, max speed, or – very similar. I think part of that just has to do with being stronger. You know, most of them do train now better equipment, but what I'm finding is the skill of movement is lacking. Like they're still very good players, right? Good hockey players are good hockey players. The, you know, the guys that are in the NHL are in the NHL because they're great hockey players. Um, they're great at, you know, uh, at compensating movement and being able to kind of adjust. But what I'm finding is they're not necessarily able to, get the angles they need. They're not able to use their edges the way they should. And they're not able to create the forces that need to be created to move efficiently, you know? And we spent a lot of time working on, working on those skills on the ice. Um, so you've seen a big change though, in terms of like just the overall athleticism of these guys then, huh? Absolutely. And it's like, for us, it's like, it's one thing for us to see it, but like a lot of like, you know, I'm always asking these guys, like, how do you feel? Like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Like, I need you to be honest with me. Like, how are you feeling out there? How was your season? And a lot of them, like, they're just saying, like, they're feeling way more comfortable on the ice. They're feeling faster on the ice. And that's what we want. Like, I don't care if you feel faster in the gym and it doesn't matter what sport it is. I want you to be like, I'm in that game. I feel like I have another gear or I feel way more comfortable in this turn or in this position. And that's kind of what our, our goal is, is not so much like weight room improvement, but we want to see the improvement in the game. You know what I mean? Um, and that's the feedback we're getting from these guys, which is awesome. Is the, um, I, I can imagine too, uh, the pandemic, obviously unfortunate and not great for, for many of us, but getting, an extended period of time with some of these athletes away from their sport might not necessarily be a bad thing, especially if we were operating under the logic of, well, they might be getting all this change of direction work, for example, done in their sport. But if we're not doing it in a way that's ever kind of cognitive of our lack of abilities and we're not adjusting and fixing potential errors that could be making us better, like this was the perfect time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, that was kind of great for, for some of the guys. They, uh, they had an extended period of time off the ice and they got with us almost right away through like a, our, our team builder app. And then we would do some like Zoom sessions with them. 
Um, <clears throat> the one thing that like for the college players, anyways, a lot of them are already back and it doesn't seem like they have as much access to these things. I almost wish that they, they stayed home because I think they would have more access to training and ice here than they would in the college setting because things are very restricted. Because I think this is as much as obviously this is a crazy time and like, you know people aren't playing, it's a great opportunity for a lot of athletes who only do one sport too much to actually improve overall athleticism. And this might have been a great time for people with a long-term athletic development model to see huge gains in their overall performance. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And, and I, it was interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, being that we're with basketball and that is our biggest issue here is working in some of that stuff, just given the training loads they have year round being on the court because basketball, they just play all year. Like it's not like hockey where you go, oh, I'm going to step away from the ice for a couple months and, you know, kind of recoup and everything like that, which I feel like is a lot more prevalent. These guys play every day. And they still, well, even in this, even in this you know, environment, a lot of them have played every day, which is crazy. So that's a, a, a huge problem. We see obviously where we are, you know what I mean? Uh, close to Philadelphia, there's a ton of hockey. These kids play club, play school, and then some of them play tournament teams. So in season where we train these club teams, we have kids that are, so they're on the ice sometimes nine to 10 times a week because they're doing high school practice to club practice. Then they have a game and then they have tryouts with some tournament team for the summer. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it's crazy. It's the exact same problems. Like where do we fit in training during all this stress? And then they have homework and then they got to sleep, <laughs> which they don't do. Um, so it, it, it's definitely something that we're, we're struggling with too. Yeah. I, I just, it, it bothers me and it, it definitely makes me wonder sometimes is like, are we just the thing that is too much, you know? And I hate to like, single us out because clearly I, I honestly think it's, we know what the problem is. It's, it's this need or this feel to be, have exposure at the age of 13 in front of people to show them that you're good when quite honestly, I mean, if you're good, you're good. You're going to, you know, in this day and age, you're going to be fine. You know? <laughs> so. Right. And it's just like a lot of pressure from parents and coaches to yeah. win. Right. And I like try and tell people, like, do you want to develop these players? Like, cause who wants to be the best 12 year old? You want to be the best 18, 19, 20 year old. Like, so if we can, you know, flip that script and not worry about winning at that young age and worry about like, Hey, did these players develop, you know? And that's something that we would like to see. And we talk about this a lot is it's tough, but I would have like to have a lot more say in overall development in an organization is sitting down with all the coaches and everyone and being like, Hey, look, what's the long-term plan here? And then let's look at some physiology and some science and some training and schedule in skill development and conditioning and strengthening and have a plan so that you have the best teams uh, when they're in 16 and 18. And now you're producing players to go to college and to go do pro versus having the best 12 year olds and 13s because you pulled from everywhere and then they don't develop and they've maxed out and then that's it. Yeah, we've wanted to talk to coaches even about setting up their practices for the week. You know, we'll, we're usually at the hockey rink every night. So we go on like a Monday or Tuesday and they're doing like power play work. It's like that should be done later in the week. They're doing their hard practices on like Thursday when they have a game on Saturday. 
It's like it just doesn't quite match up as well as it, it could. It's like we're not telling you how to run your practice. Just let's order the practices a little bit different. Yeah, I, I think um, it's cool to take some of what they're doing in soccer where I feel like our roles are actually doing a lot of the the planning of that stuff or at least being heavily consulted on those things. And American sports, a lot of times, I don't feel like that's kind of translated over yet. I don't know if it ever will, uh, just given the autonomy of the American sport coach. But but I completely agree with you guys. It's 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 going to be it's so key to have people that understand the whole picture kind of helping to orchestrate some of the, the big scheduling things to make sure these kids are kind of set up for success, especially at younger ages. Right. I, I think that's why we've been talking kind of during this pandemic anyways, where we're, you can have bigger groups. If we've been doing a lot of talking about maybe trying to do more one-on-one training and getting these kids and parents who have the goal of long-term development, and like how cool that would be to start developing these, these kids at a young age and not just, Hey, I want my kid to beat out so-and-so for a spot on the team this year, like actually having a long-term plan and starting to build, you know what I mean? Maybe do less training sessions and more quality versus quantity sessions and start to kind of break that down. And, you know, you're talking about soccer. That's something Jason's talked about for years now. Is he actually like talked about like how they do the small games on one day and like they break up the the size of the of the pitch. Like we would love to do something like that with hockey, right? Like break down the size of the ice on on this day and work these skills. Um, that's something Jason's talked about for years. He could probably tell you more about it. Yeah, like the idea of you know beginning of the week or when the guys are fresh, go full ice three on three or something like that, where they are really opening up, getting after it. And then as the week goes on, shrink the ice, add more players in. So it becomes more skill development work where they're not, you know, they're not able to get nearly the speed that they normally would before they have to either pass the puck or, or make a play with the puck. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely awesome. Um, there's a lot of, I'm sure you guys have like read like game changer by Fergus and, and stuff like that. I mean, just, that's the quintessential working your way back from the sport, seeing what's needed and then making sure on our end that like from a physiological perspective and a nervous system perspective, we have the guys ready to go at the, the precise moment in time, rather than just going out oh, today, we're going to do this. Cause I feel like it and it's hard. <laughs> so, right. So it's I, like when you like finish like mid season and the coaches are saying like, uh, all oh, my guys aren't in shape. It's like we're in the middle of the season and they're playing every single day. So if they're not in shape, something else is wrong here, right? And, like, let's break this down. Maybe you're structuring practice wrong during the week so that they're fried by the time they get to their game on Friday, Saturday. But it's not that. It's always, like, you know, they need more. They need more conditioning, right? They need more of this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, workload is workload's king. The more workload we get, the better we're going to be in every instance, obviously. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, uh, Guys, before I let you go um, – any projects? I mean, you even mentioned to me earlier working on a couple of things. So any projects, social media, I know you guys have your podcast, anything you want to promote on here, please have at it. And um, yeah. Yeah. I have a, a video multi-directional plows for athletes that it's on our website, functionandstrength.net slash videos. I post this ton of stuff on Instagram. It's just my name at Jason Fairheller and um, Ryan and I are, right now working on kind of a big project 
talking about like the model that we just had and, but something that's like practical for coaches to, to kind of figure out and apply to their stuff on multi-directional speed and power. Absolutely. I mean, you can, you can follow us both on, on Instagram. Uh, you can also follow, follow function strength, which is the gym we own on Instagram. And then, uh, we have the, uh, the podcast we've recently started, um, the speed and power podcast. We're covering more of this speed and power, multi-directional speed and power uh, with different guests. Obviously, Jack, you were on recently and talking about how, how breathing can impact that. Um, we're just trying to uh, get some of our questions answered s- selfishly from other coaches that we want to hear from. And then it was just something that we felt, uh, you know, when we were looking at some of this stuff, there wasn't a, a ton out there. So trying to get more information out there for, for coaches. No, absolutely, guys. I, I really appreciate it. And I definitely really enjoyed kind of following you guys. And I, I've really enjoyed the podcast. You guys have had some killer guests on. So, yeah, especially uh, that especially that one guy, you know, right here. Uh, no, I'm yep. just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but no, seriously, you guys are, are killing the, the podcast game. I'm really enjoying them. So keep keep doing that. Thank you Thank very you. much. We appreciate it. Hey, absolutely, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch for sure. So really appreciate all your time and uh, have a good rest of your day. 